We are continuing the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and this week we'll be in chapter 15. Last week, Eric um, taught through chapter 14 on saving faith. This morning, it will be about a repentance unto life and salvation, and you guys have in your handouts. If you didn't get one, just uh, let Charlie know. But in the handouts are the different paragraphs that we'll be going through. We have five different paragraphs. Um, but today, like we did last week, we did faith. This week, we take that next step and look at what is repentance. And what does the 1689 say about that? And, and scripture, of course, as well. So the quote there at the top of your handout, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace. This comes from the third paragraph. Um, and helps us to orient this chapter as well as our discussion today. Uh, so we often talk about faith as an essential component to salvation, but I think sometimes we can functionally forget that repentance is as well. Repentance is also necessary in our salvation. Joel Beakey said that faith and repentance stand in essential unity as two sides of the one saving response to the word of God. As Christ said in Mark chapter 1, he said that we are to repent and believe the gospel. That was the message he was coming out to preach and starting his ministry. So let's open up and go to paragraph 3. Joshua has the mic, and if somebody, so we're going to go back, we're going to, obviously we're going in a little bit different order. Paragraph 3 is, you know, after 1 and 2, but we're going to start it at top of the, the hour because I think it, again, helps us to orient about repentance, what does it look like, and everything. So, would somebody be willing to read paragraph three into the mic? Yes. The mic the mic. Mike is going to take the mic. Thank you, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Ghost made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by his faith in Christ humble himself for it, it with godly sorrow, devastation of it, and self-abhorrence, abhorrence, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Thank you, DJ Mike. All right. So who can, who can define for me what is repentance? Hmm? Turning away from your sin, good. Anybody want to add to that or have a different way to define it? Godly sorrow, Godly sorrow. great. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, very good, Courtney. Yeah, so these are all great components, and actually we're going to be covering so these things. We're, so we're going to be talking about turning away from our sin, turning toward Christ and obedience, and the godly sorrow aspect. So we're going to break this down, um, the 1689, because I'm a nerd, and I do this during my job, basically looking at root cause analysis. So I ask the usual six questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. So the first one is the what of repentance. That is your blank, the what of repentance. So we can see here, uh, and the 1689 talks about this, that it is enabled by God. 
This is the intellectual or the knowledge of sin component. Intellectual or knowledge of sin component. So this is the soil of repentance where God makes us sensible, makes us aware that we are sinners. He makes us aware that we have sinned. He awakens us to the fact that he is a holy God and we are not, that we are sinners through and through and we have committed acts of treason. We have broken his law. And so we have offended our holy God. So in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read that verse there. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38, this comes after Peter is at Pentecost and he preaches that boss sermon of repentance and faith in Christ. And as he goes through all, all these things, the people are broken. And it says here in 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So again, so we see here that the Holy Spirit has worked upon these, these people's hearts. There's, they are now made aware that something is wrong. They're, they're made aware that, that God is who he is, that Christ is the Son of God. And... They are like, what are we supposed to do? And, they re- and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells them that they are to repent and be baptized. Peter tells them that this is a, an essential component, and that's one, one thing that we're going to be looking at. So we're looking at just that intellectual awareness. We've been, our minds have been made alive. They now, we now know... God is holy, and we are not. So Burkhoff said, There is a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. And then Waldron was helpful here because he also says that the Lord brings on us an apprehension of his mercy, not only that awareness of our sin, but he brings upon us an awareness of his mercy in Christ, which is the confidence or conviction that if I repent, and go back to God, he will receive and forgive me. So through faith, we're humbled, and we confess our sins to God. Would somebody read, Joshua, going to get back up, Psalm 32, verse 5 for us, please. Who wants the mic? Psalm 32, verse 5. Justin's up here. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Thank you. So we not only confess the sins that we commit, sins of commission, we not only confess the sins that we omit, the sins of omission, basically those things that we know that are good that we don't do, but we also confess that we ourselves are sinful. This is, a, I, I hope, is a component of when you are in confession before the Lord, that you don't forget that, this, that you, not only do you break God's law, that you commit these acts of sin, but you yourself are a sinner. You are a sinner through and through. In, in iniquity were you knit together, right, in your mother's womb, as David says. So we turn, so we're enabled by God, we're made aware of our sins, and then, as Rachel said, we now turn from our sin. That's that first kind of component there in our turning. This is the emotional component. Emotional. 
And as DJ Mike said, we have a godly sorrow. So what I would like to do is we're going to take three verses and three different components, there are three different examples of sorrow from the Bible. And what I want you to do is, as, as it's being read, I want you to kind of think through what is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So we're going to have three people read, please. One verse each. Psalm 57, verse 17. Would somebody read that? Ted? It's Matthew 27, 3. Who's going to grab that? All right, Edgar. And then Luke 18, 23. Who will take that next? Thank you, sir. All right, so we're going to start with Ted, Edgar, and then all the way in the corner, Joshua. Okay. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Thank you. Edgar? 27.3? 27.3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Thank you. And then put on your wheels. <laughs> At work, we've got these things that are like foam boxes you can throw around the room. So one day, maybe. One day, John, we can get that. Luke 18, 23. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? Thank you, Wesley. So we have three examples in here, right? We've got David, we've got Judas, and then we have the rich young ruler. All of them, would we not agree, say that they are sorrowful? Yes. But do all of them have the same sorrow? What is the difference? We, we heard the three verses, but I think we all probably know the stories. What do we know about these stories, about these people, and what kind of sorrow did they have? What does, and how does that make us think about what is a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow? So who can, who can share with, with us the differences that they, between these three examples. Yep. Good. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Worldly sorrow is a grief over our sin's consequences. Worldly sorrow is a grief because we were caught or we got in trouble or somebody else may be mad at us. But a godly grief is one that is, is, goes, is knowing that we sinned against God, that we sullied his name, that we dishonored him. And so Beaky here, and in, in the quote here, he, he talks about this litmus test. And if, again, being the geek that I am, litmus test, litmus paper, chemicals, acid base. This is the test, this is a good test to see and to ask in your own heart, what kind of sorrow do you have when you... Um, in your sin? Are you sad merely because your sins hurt you and other people or because your sins offend God? I think that's really important for us to be asking ourselves. Are we sad because we got caught? Are we sad because we, if we hurt somebody and they, that's going to damage my relationship with that person? Are we sad because this is a, this is a grief and this is a, a, a sin that I committed against a holy God and I've sullied his name? And I've turned away from him. So I, I really hope that we're, we're thinking through that as a, as a church and as a body. So we, we see that we, we turn from sin. 
And the other thing is, is that, uh, that the 1689 brings up in the scripture as well, of course, is that we detest sin. We hate sin. So uh, Thomas Watson in the Doctrine of Repentance says that heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. And I don't know about you, but man, those Puritans, they hate sin. If you've ever read a Puritan, you feel a wretch. And praise God, because they hate sin. They hated sin. And we should as well. We should know that our sin is against a holy God, and we should hate it. We should detest it. If God is working in our lives, then we should be hating sin because it's against him. Beaky adds another component here, not only just this, um, this look at the emotional component uh, of our sin, uh, but also he adds in here a behavioral change, which is a turning of the conduct. He, here he distinguishes between the emotional and the behavioral components, where emotionally we come to hate sin, as we discussed, but Beaky adds the nuance of also forsaking our sins. We're combining that in here, of course, because in Scripture it has it as well, but we forsake our sins. We turn from it. We forsake it. We don't want anything to do with it anymore. And then the 1689 adds that we abhor ourselves. We hate these, these things about ourselves. We hate ourselves, even, that I am no longer worthy. Um, as it says there in Luke, it's, it's the, um, the son of the, the prodigal son who says that he is no longer worthy. Uh, he knows and he recognizes what he's done. And I remember when we were at um, Grace Community Church in Nashville uh, a long time ago, when our kids were little, we went through a parenting class. And the youth pastor, or the uh, children's pastor there, he would always say that one of his family rules was that you hate yourself. And he would say that to their, their little daughters. And I was like, man, that's coming from a background of me, a heathen background. I was like, what in the world? That's that's so weird, um, but I get it, right? They, he, they were trying to raise their girls to see that it wasn't about them, that we put God first. We love the Lord our God with our, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we hate ourselves so much that not so much in the sense of um, where we take it to the extreme of you know, self-infliction and all that kind of things like that, but it's a hatred of ourself, of of our sin against God, of, of that, that because of my sin nature, I hate God, I'm going to hate that. That new nature, praise God, that God gives us, the new heart doesn't, uh, but I hope you guys get that distinction, that, that there is a hatred of that sinful self. <coughs> um, but then as, as Courtney added, uh, the, the last point there from paragraph three is that we turn to him. So I want us to read two scriptures uh, would somebody read Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 31? And then somebody else, Acts 26, 18. Who's going to grab Ezekiel so Joshua can come back there in the back with Phil? And then Acts 26, who will grab Charlie? Right behind you, buddy. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Thank you, Phil. And Acts twenty six eighteen.
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Great. So there's this act in there, especially there in the that it is only by God's grace that we're awakened to the fact that we are sinners, that he is a holy God, that we've done something against him, and we are sinful. But then God helps us to hate our sin, to turn from it, and to walk and, and to turn to him, to have this volitional change where we no longer desire those things that the old man wanted of sin, but now we, we want him. We want to obey him and honor him. So we're going to go through now paragraphs one and two. So again, Joshua was going to he'll come around. Who will grab paragraph one for us? All right, courts. Paragraph two. Ted. All right, so Joshua courts, then Ted. Such of the elect as are converted at riper years, having riper, mm-hmm. yes, everybody, mm-hmm. okay, having sometime lived in the state of nature, and therein served divers lusts and pleasures, God and their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. Yes, that was right. Riper years. All right, now Ted for paragraph two. Whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not, and the best of men may, through, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption, dwell in them, with the prevency, prevalency, prevalency of temptation, fall into great sin and provocations. God hath, in the convention of grace, mercifully provided that believers, so sinning and falling, be renewed to repentance unto salvation. Awesome. Thank you. Those are funny paragraphs, are they not? So we're going to be talking about the who of repentance and maybe a little bit of the why. So your blanks there, who and why. Titus 3, verses 2 through 5. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we see here that... Of course, as we know, as any 
good reformed uh, uh, person, kid. We go through the Romans road. We know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, right? Uh, and repentance leaves unto, un, unto life. So um, it, when I ran into these, these passages, it was really interesting just to see in paragraphs one and two, the, the riper and, and then the, the other category there in paragraph two. Um, but what I want to do is, is go through that. So why are the ripe so special? So we're going to look at Second Chronicles 33, just real briefly. So this is the story of Manasseh. Manasseh was an evil king, a wicked king. Uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as we read at the beginning of chapter 33. He was actually the son of one who was a good king, but he, he turned evil. But then when we get to, and he did evil sights, he led the people into idolatry, he, he, he established, um, you know, again, just the, the, uh, the, the sacrifices uh, to other gods, he, he, he led Israel astray. But then uh, what we see is, uh, sorry, in, in verses 10 through 20, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. It continues on and, and talks about what Manasseh then, then did afterwards. He, he had started doing some good things. He started to take away foreign gods and idols from the house of the Lord. Um, he also restored the altar of the Lord and offered right sacrifices uh, there. And, um, but the problem is in verse 17, the people still sacrifice. So we see here that Manasseh likely was one of those ripe converts. He had been living his life uh, for a while now, he had been following diverse la lusts and passions of his flesh, but then he turns, and sadly, he's still considered to not have done all because his entire kingship, his, his rule was not good. It led the people astray. He did have a period of time there at the end where he turned, but unfortunately, just he, uh, the rest of his king, his king was not that his. His rule and reign was not good. He repented, but God, and God released him, but just didn't change everything, sadly. So we also see here, uh, so that's from paragraph one. In paragraph two, well, he, um, the, the authors talk about uh, those who fall into great sins and provocations. So we're, we're looking at uh, people who have lived the, lived the life and, kno and know the Lord, but have fallen into great uh, sins uh, that, that lead to periods of just this kind of uh, great repentance. David and Bathsheba, of course, being, being some of those, or David being one of those examples. Peter denying Christ um, would be another. And so repentance is, is definitely for all, and even those who may not have added Christ as a And this is where I thought it was kind of interesting. So the Westminster does not have any of this language in it, in chapter 15 on repentance. Uh, but the Savoy Declaration, and then which, and then which was before the 1689, both of them match exactly. Uh, so there, what uh, Waldron was pretty helpful with trying to figure out, and maybe you know putting a good 
estimate on maybe why this was in here. He was, he was talking about how that the, the Baptist uh, um, authors uh, desired to make a distinction between repentance as an ordinary grace versus repentance from a crisis event. You know, basically to practically demonstrate that you don't need a crisis event in your life to be a true believer. You don't have to have this, this literal uh, or this perceived dark to light transformation. You know, uh, praise God, and, and like in our home, I know my wife the same, and probably for a lot of us, there was, you know, you grew up in a godly home. You were raised in a godly home, and you're still converted. Your story may not seem as legit as somebody who went from complete darkness to light, and had this aha moment, and you, I think, oftentimes you struggle with that, am I really a believer, because I didn't have this dramatic event, and I think that's what the authors are trying to, to help avoid, is to say that just because you don't have that dark to light, or these crisis events like David or Peter, doesn't mean anything about your salvation, that repentance is still for you, you're still called to repent, and you do call, and you are to be repenting if the Lord has you, right? So I think that that's why, and I, I, I liked Waldron's um, you know, explanation of this, kind of helped bring light to why does he pick on those right believers, you know, what's, what's wrong with the old people um, coming to faith in Christ, so. Um, and then, uh, you know, so that's talking about the who. So basically, repentance is for everyone, right? Repentance is not just for those who have a crisis event, those who go through crazy transformations, it's for all believers. Repentance, repentance is there because we have offended a holy God. Whether or not we are, you know, in the world's eyes looking clean and look good, we still have our sin nature. We still hate the Lord and our sinful nature. We still sin against him and break his laws and his commands. And so we still are called to repent. Uh, but uh, there's also in here maybe a little bit of the why about repentance. So repentance is unto life. So in Acts, again, going uh, back to Acts, in Acts chapter 11, though, this is that scene uh, where Peter has this vision um, where he is, where a sheet is brought down. It's brought, um, God has a bunch of uh, animals on there that used to be to him unclean, um, and, uh, you know, then, then God gives him the hunter's verse, right? Every hunt, good hunter knows that verse. Who can tell me what that verse is for good hunters? Come on. I, got, I know I got some hunters in here. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Come on. That is like on everybody's T-shirt if they go hunting. Um, <laughs> that's right rise Brandon just watch <laughs> watch them go right by <laughs> yeah but he he uh he has this vision uh he says rise kill and eat uh and uh basically God is telling him that the Gentiles are no longer left out that repentance is now for them that they will be given life and then in the Mark chapter 1 verse, that's one I, uh, I said at the beginning, Christ was telling them that at the beginning of his ministry, he was going to call them to repentance and to believe the gospel. 
And then in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is where Jesus says uh, that now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see that, in, that our life is, that life is given to us through Christ, through the gospel, and repentance is part of that. Repentance is unto life, uh, as um, they said with, about the Gentiles. And then secondly, we look at that we are renewed through repentance. Would somebody read Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 20? And then Joshua will hurry that mic over to you. Oh, I think he found somebody. Sorry, Lauren. We'll get you next time. Three nineteen through 20? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Thank you. So we're renewed. Those times of refreshing are for those who repent and believe, that, that we are ones who are refreshed by our Christ and the wonderful truths all in there. So we've looked at the what, we've looked at the who, and a little bit of the why. But now let's go to paragraphs four and five. So Lauren, would you read paragraph four? Thank you. And who will get paragraph five? Justin, after Lauren, please, Joshua. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives, upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Thank you. And Justin's going to grab paragraph five. Such is the, the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the pre uh, preservations, uh, preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, Yet there is no sin so great that it brings uh, that it shall bring damnation on them who truly repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Thank you. All right, so now we're going to look at the somewhat how of repentance. So it's not really necessarily the how of repentance is done. We've kind of already talked about that in the what, right? Uh, but more about how this may look or play out in our lives. How does repentance look? Uh, in a believer's life. So again, we've already kind of covered the first parts here. Repentance is a gift from the Lord to those in Christ through him. Repentance also, uh, and, and how this may look, it is going to look as obedience, that it will cause obedience uh, for the believer. First, through confession, so, when again, we've kind of already touched on confession, and what does that look like, but also continual repentance. So, repentance is continued throughout the life of the believer. It's not just a one-and-done type of thing, but a believer is always repenting and should always be repenting before the Lord because are we not always continuing in our sin? So, a life is characterized by repentance. Would somebody read Isaiah Chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. This will be the last one. Who wants the last opportunity? Oh, Mike does. He, he kicked us off. He's going to bring it home. He's running at the beginning and the anchor. Look at him. 
Isaiah 1, 16 through 18. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from your before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. Thanks, Mike. So that that obedience that that is uh, given unto us, that obedience, that fruit of of uh, fruit of repentance, the fruit that the Lord gives us, uh, is continuing in. And, and as Mike read that that verse, there was there was things seeking justice, doing these things. This is part of that obedience that God has given us. And Beaky again is helpful here. He says, "Saving repentance is not just a change of beliefs or a religious decision." but a complete reorientation of a person by grace. So it's completely changing a person. Repentance changes someone. It's a true repentance is one that, again, it's that you're heading towards sin, you're turning from sin, and you're turning to the Lord. It's a complete reorientation of who we were and what we desire. So, and then 1689, and Savoy has this too, but the 1689 adds this little bit of... Uh, actually the the Westminster has this as well but the the 1689 adds that there's a duty to repent of known sins so that blank there that last blank is known sins and it's helpful because and we'll get into this here in just a second but it's helpful to know to to have that distinction because uh, it also explains that no sins too small to repent of that there's no sin too large that forgiveness is impossible and we know from James 2.10 that whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So whether that sin in our eyes is, sin, is small or large, it doesn't matter. We've broken the law, and repentance uh, should be ours. So what about, though, those hidden sins? Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So we definitely ask the Lord to cleanse us from all our sins, whether they are known or unknown, Right? But how can I really repent of a sin if it's not known? How can I know to turn from that sin, to hate it, if I don't really know about it? So the Lord does, at different times in our life, reveal sin in our lives. He does, I, I don't probably know all the sins that I've committed to the, uh, unto the Lord right now, but there are different seasons in my life where he reveals those things. Um, and it, it's why like uh, Paul can say that he is the chief of sinners. Granted, he did some bad things, right? But I, so did I but he has been continually revealed more and more the depths of his depravity. Um, so that repentance is for the known, and I think that's where it's helpful with, um, with why the Savoy and the 1689 differ um, from the Westminster, and it adds this little bit just to help us as believers to know and to, to, to know what repentance and how to act that out. So again, and so the last point here is preaching constantly um, to ourselves to remind ourselves and others of the need to repent, because again, I mean, we've said this countless times, we're a forgetful people. We, uh, we're not like elephants who remember everything, right? We forget things, we forget the gospel, we need the gospel to be preached to us, to, to preach it to ourselves. We need to be pre- preaching repentance as well to us, because as uh, Thomas Watson here in this last um, passage says, he says, O Christian, the disease of your soul is chronic and frequently returns upon you, Therefore, you must be continually physicking yourself by repentance. 
A word physicking basically means to, to bake, you know, take medicine, take, to treat. There's something wrong with us. We have a disease of sin, and repentance is, is the treatment that helps us to, uh, to, uh, to feel better, to, to get better, to, to turn to the Lord, to turn away from that. And then uh, there on the back, um, just as a little helpful diagram, this was in Waldron's book, um, and it's just the tree, um, tree of repentance, I guess. Uh, but there, it, it, we, it covers all the things that we talked about, the soil uh, of, of God awakening us, uh, giving us a true sense of our sin and our sin, sinfulness, the apprehension of his mercy, turning from sin, turning to God, and then the fruit of obedience. All right, so that is it. We, I'm going to, anybody have any questions, one or two questions? Yes. Yeah. The who of repentance and the little bit of why. Yeah. Yep. Any other questions? We have like another minute. All right. Well, let me close us in prayer. And we'll head into worship. Father God, thank you so much again for gathering us this morning. Thank, us so, thank you so much, Lord, that you have allowed us to talk about repentance and what that looks like, Lord. I pray, I pray, Father, that we here at Grace Covenant Church would be a people that hate our sin, that we just absolutely hate it because, Father, it is, um, these are acts, these are treasonous acts, these are uh, law-breaking things that we do uh, against you. And not only that, Lord, but that we are also sinners. We were knitted together in our mother's womb, but in iniquity were we knitted. And Father, we, are, we carry that sin of Adam through us uh, and in us. And Lord, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to hate that. But then, Lord, help us, Father, to not forget that in repentance there is that turn. There is that turn towards Christ. That, that, that new heart, that new self that we've been given, we would live in. Let, help us, Father, to see that you've given us a new heart to love you by, that we are your people, that you love us, and you have a covenant love of your people. And Father, may you help us then to live in light of that, to hate our sin and turn to you and live for Christ. Father, may you bless us today, and may we come now to worship you, that you would be exalted, that your name would be praised and honored, and that you would be put on display. In Christ's name, amen.